Hello and welcome to Strange Shenanigans. I'm Stan. I'm Ashley. And we're going to do this live today because we felt like it. We're pretty much trying to do everything live. Right. Like every podcast has its thing. And I guess that's going to be our thing because we want you guys to call in. Right. So that's our thing. We're live now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have each have our topics today because if you listen to our podcast before and if you haven't, we're going to tell you how it works. So we each pick a topic most likely unrelated to the other. Yep. And we don't tell each other what we're talking about. And then we do our thing and then talk about it candidly, unscriptedly. I don't know. Whatever you prefer. But that's what we do. Psychotically. Psychotically. What? And you better believe it's weird. Who's going to start? Are you going to start or am I going to start? I'll start. All right, you start. Jump right into it. So I want to talk about the Irish potato famine. Ooh. Always a happy topic. Always a happy topic. But I'm not going to talk about the depressing part of the Irish famine, you know, where the English committed genocide against the Irish people. Yep. So, if we have any English listeners today, I mean, your history did it, not me. So, it's not my fault I said it. So, the Irish potato famine, as we all know, was Irish potatoes had a virus that went around and then they all, like, died and went. Well, today I'm not going to talk about that. So, if that's what you wanted to hear, sorry. But I'm going to talk about um, a woman whose name I'm going to horribly mispronounced. So sorry. Her name is Eleanor Reggio de la Brancherde. Oh, yeah. I know. She was also known as Mademoiselle Reggio. She's not very Irish to me. She is not Irish. That's an amazing (laughs) observation. She is not. So Eleanor Reggio most likely is a name you have never once heard before. Nope. Exactly. My point exactly. <laughs> Especially when it pertains to the potato famine. So Mademoiselle Reggio is also known as the mother of modern crochet. Ooh. I know. Which is a huge accomplishment because she actually only lived to be 59. So the fact that you're known as the mother of anything and only lived to be, you know, barely 60, yeah. it's pretty cool. So props to you, Mademoiselle. She accomplished what I believe is her greatest accomplishment when she was just in her 30s. So the Great Famine was 1845 to 1852. Again, 1845-ish to 1852-ish. Because when you look up the potato famine history, it was a lot longer than we advertise or our history books advertise. But anyway, the short version of the Great Famine is that a destructive plant pathogen called... Pytotheria infestants went rampant through all the Irish farms and Britain took this opportunity to make an attempt to kill off the Irish population. And, you know, I'm not the only one who considers it uh, genocide. Again, just Google it. I'm not the only one. So, I'll let you look... Gen- genocide through inaction. <laughs> so, I'll let you look into the real events of the Great Famine because I want to talk about this amazing woman and not focus on the horrors that the English caused on my ancestors. So, Eleanor Reggio, our mother of crochet, also the first woman to publish a book of any crochet, decided that she could do something about the starving people of Ireland. 
and it wasn't a quick fix. It was something people could depend on, though. So Miss Eleanor started teaching the wives of farmers the trade of crochet. Now we've all been to our farmers markets and our craft shows and, and probably learned how to crochet on YouTube, but that wasn't really a thing in the 1800s. So this was kind of a cool thing. And she didn't just teach them how to crochet like blankets and stuff. She taught them the amazing skill of Irish crochet. And that's what it's known as now. So learning how to crochet was a perfect skill because the materials were very easy to find and cost absolutely nothing. You could crochet anytime also. The weather had no impact on having the skill, which was another big deal during the famine. Because if you look into the Irish potato famine, a lot of people were living literally without roofs over their head. Like they had no roofs and if they had roofs, the English were burning, literally burning their roofs down. So this Tearing was, them down for unpaid taxes. Yeah, so this was kind of a yeah. big deal. So the materials were very easy to find, cost nothing, weather didn't matter. And the upside of learning how to crochet with the final creation was actually in very high regard in those mid-1800s. And it was hugely in demand by high society, so they would pay for these products. At the time, and we are talking about, you know, the mid-1800s, lace was really popular. And Irish crochet had the look of lace, but was quicker to make. So Eleanor taught them how to do this skill. Eleanor did not just sit and teach the woman how to crochet. She created something at the time that was in high demand and a lot easier to make. She invented a special lace pattern that looked like the vetted needlepoint. This was incredible, incredibly popular in a style that was in very high regards. Venetian needlepoint would take 200 hours to make. But Eleanor invented a way to crochet it, so she managed to figure out how to make the style in only 20 hours. Irish crochet is not worked in rows, so it isn't what you may see your grandparents doing or what you learn how to crochet or how I tried to learn how to crochet by YouTube and got violently angry and threw my needles across the room. This is totally different. <laughs> Irish crochet is actually a series of motifs of pictures and designs. And they're made one at a time and then they're joined together by fans, mess mesh or sewing together so once the woman mastered their crochet they worked together by specializing in certain areas that they were best at irish lace became so popular that certain families actually had their own designs that actually belonged to them and no one was allowed to copy their motifs and this was even a bigger deal and especially with the irish famine because like you owned your motif so you yeah. owned your motif stand nobody else could copy it and only let's say mrs jones over there had a motif yeah. so mrs smith wanted it and had to get it just from you yeah so she had to pay for it just from you so once these women mastered their crochet they worked together and specialized in their certain areas that they were best at yeah irish lace became so that certain families had their own designs that belonged to them and no one was allowed to copy them. 
women would even guard how they made their motifs and it was their secret family like recipes yeah this was really important especially in the mid 1800s because for some families this was their only income mm-hmm. it was so serious there are stories of women hiding what they were working on when someone came into a room and there's some stories of like people finding these long lost motifs cleaning out like a grandma's basement and stuff that's awesome so when Eleanor was able to publish her book of Irish Crochet, it was estimated that 20,000 women in South Ireland were using her method to create their own crochet patterns. Yeah. Her first book of Irish Crochet was published in 1846, and that's the year after the famine was considered to start. And California was actually the major distribution center known for Irish knitwear that used the knitwear and Irish crochet that Eleanor was putting out to save these women from the Irish potato famine. And that's the whole story of how one woman made her contribution to help the Irish during the Great Hunger. That's pretty cool. Freaking amazing. I want to be Eleanor when I grow up. And she did this all in her 30s. Like, I'm in my 30s. I haven't done anything. I haven't saved a whole race of people from the Great Famine. Right. Or really any famine. (laughs) So, especially the Great Famine, right? Yeah. That was a while ago. But she's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So that's Eleanor. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Eleanor. Okay. So what do you got for us today, Stan? What's your topic? I've got the Vasilka Axe Murders. That sounds nothing like an amazing woman. Oh, it's not. It's who saved the Irish people. Yeah, no. All right. So uh, this uh, this took place in 1912, okay? So you can, uh, keep, in lot, keep in mind, you know, that this wasn't like yesterday or the 60s when everybody was always going batshit crazy this this was 1912 okay selena and inna stillingard uh the daughters of joseph and and sarah stillinger left their home for church early sunday morning they planned on having dinner with their grandmother after the morning service spending the afternoon with her and then returning to her home to spend the night after the children's day exercises concluded Girls, however, were invited by Catherine Moore to spend the night at the Moore home instead. Prior to leaving for the exercises, Mr. Moore placed a call to the Stillinger home to ask permission for the girls to stay overnight. Blanche, Lena, and Inna's older sister told Mr. Moore that her parents were both outdoors, but she would pass the message along to them. The Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church was an annual event and began at around 8 in the uh, evening uh, on June 9th. According to witnesses, Sarah Moore coordinated the exercises. All of the Moore children, as well as the Stillinger girls, participated. Josiah Moore sat in the uh, congregation, and the program ended at about 9.30 p.m. The Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked home from the church. They entered their home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. at night. The following morning, at around 5 a.m., Mary Peckham, the Moore's next-door neighbor, stepped into her yard to hang laundry. At about seven, she realized that not only had Moors, the Moors not been outside or started any of their chores, but that the house itself seemed unusually still between seven and eight. Mary Pickham approached the house and knocked on the door. 
When she received no response, she attempted to open the door and only to find it locked from the inside. After uh, going and letting out the Moore's chickens, Mary placed a call to uh, Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, which would uh, set into place one of the most mismanaged and crazy murder investigations to ever take place. Okay. Based on the testimonies of Mary Peckham and those who saw the Moors at the Children's Day exercise, it is believed that sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., an unknown assailant entered the home of J.B. Moore and brutally murdered every occupant inside the house. Uh, yeah. With an axe. Okay. Upon arriving at the home of his brother, Ross Moore attempted to look in a bedroom window and then knocked on the door and shouted, attempting to race someone inside the house. When that failed, he produced his keys and found one that opened the door. Although Miss Peckham followed him into the porch, she did not enter the parlor. Ross went no further than the room of the parlor. When he opened the bedroom door, he saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the bedcloths. He returned immediately to the porch and told Miss Peckham to call the sheriff. The two bodies in the room downstairs were Lena Stillinger, age 12, and her sister Ina, age 8, uh. house guests of the Moore children. The remaining members of the Moore family were found in the upstairs bedrooms by the city marshal, Hank Horton, who arrived shortly. Every person in the house had been brutally murdered, their skulls crushed as they slept. Oh. Josiah Moore, age 45, Sarah Montgomery Moore, age 39, Herman Moore, 11, Catherine, 9, uh, oh, Boyd, 7, Paul, 5, as well as the two Stillinger sisters. Once the murders were discovered, the news traveled quickly in the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. It is said that up to 100 people traipsed through the house gawking at the bodies before the Basilica National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and secure the house. The only known facts regarding the crime scene are as follows. Eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with an axe that was left at the scene. Doctors estimated time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. Curtains were drawn on all the windows in the house except two, which did not have curtains. Those windows were covered with clothing belonging to the Moors. All of the uh, victim's faces were covered with bedcloths after they were killed. Oh. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of Josiah and Sarah. The chimney was off and the wick had been turned back. The, ch the chimney was found under the dresser. A similar was lamp, lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the Stillinger girls. The chimney was also off. The axe was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls. It was bloody, but it, an attempt had been made to clean it off. The axe belonged to Josiah Moore. Um, the ceilings in the parents' bedroom and children's room showed gouge marks, apparently made by the upswing of the axe. That's how intensely he wanted to murder these people. Ooh. That he had slammed it into the ceiling before he brought it down on their heads. Awful. A piece of keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom that nobody could identify as belonging to Josiah. A paint of bloody water was dis discovered in the kitchen table as well as a plate of uneaten food. The doors were all locked. The bodies of Lena and Inner Stillinger were found downstairs in the parlor. Ina was sleeping closest to the wall with Lena on her right side. A gray coat covered her face. Uh, uh, Dr. Lindquist, the coroner, reported a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom lying near the axe. Uh, two pounds of bacon. 
And then there was another slab of bacon in the kitchen that had been taken out, but not actually taken from the house. Lynn Close also made a note, one of Sarah's shoes, which he found by Josiah's side of the bed, the shoe was found on its side. However, it had blood inside as well as under it. It was Lindquist's assumption that the shoe had been upright when Josiah was first struck and that the blood ran off the bed into the shoe and the killer had ac- had come back to hit him again and oh. uh, knocked the shoe over onto the floor, oh. spilling his blood out of the shoe all over the floor. So, uh, obviously, if, if this stuff had happened today, there'd be all sorts of forensic analysis and everything like that. But uh, in 1912, fingerprinting was a brand new thing. Yeah, it was much like, of a thing. Uh, and the only person to bring a camera to the crime scene uh, was told to get out because it was inappropriate. So no one took photos of the crime scene so that they can continue investigating after they buried these I people. don't know. That's fine, right? Right. Ew. But but the the the, uh, the the local person who brought it was, uh, was a, the pharmacist. And he was like, I have this camera. You should use it. And take pictures so that you you know you can go back and look at what happened here and but they they, they thought it was garish and you know disgusting and told him uh that uh it, it had to go well some standards yeah exactly <laughs> uh the, the i mean even the crime scene wasn't secured at all uh so many people walked through it and it had been just a complete mess um, today, those who've studied it uh, seem to have made up three three camps. Okay, there are many who believe that Frank F. Jones, a prominent uh, Basilica resident and Iowa State senator, was responsible for the deaths. Others uh, insist that it was a uh, how they say crazed Reverend George Kelly, and uh, still uh, others believe that it was a traveling hobo. Uh, so Josiah Moore worked for a uh, Frank Jones at Jones store for several years until he opened his own implement store in 1908. According to the residents of the town, Jones was extremely upset with Moore that he left his employee and managed to take a lot of his business and that, uh, Josiah was able to secure the, the first contract in town with John Deere instead Wait, of his John Deere. Yeah, with the John Deere tractor. Like, like the yeah. John Deere. Yeah, yeah. So he was the first one to secure it in town, and it left his old boss in the lurch because he had all this awesome equipment what? that had never been seen before, and he did not. Um. So John uh, Deere's a little bit scandalous, right? Exactly. Uh, there was a rumor that uh, Jones, the uh, the former boss, had a uh, affair with his daughter-in-law Donna which uh, made people speculative, even though there was no substance or proof to that. Mm, um, if we know history, though. Detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Frank and his son Albert of hiring uh, William Mansfield, who's one of the other uh, suspects of killing the Moore family. Uh, neither Jones or the, the, uh, the, the two of them were arrested and always denied any connection to the murder. Uh, William Mansfield of Blue Island, Illinois, was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. According to Wilkerson's investigation, the murder of Joe Moore and the other occupants of the Moore home were committed by Mansfield, who was in turn hired by Jones. 
Mansell Field was also known as George Worley and Jack Turnbow, according to Wilkerson. Mansfield was a cocaine fiend and a serial <laughs> killer. Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his own wife and infant child, oh, father-in-law, mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois, on July 5th, 1914. The axe murders uh, committed in Pola, Kansas, four days before the Basilica murders, and the murders of Gene Peterson and Jeannie Miller in Aurora, Colorado. According to Wilkerson's investigation, all the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating the same man committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of these places on the night of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the homes were covered. The burning lamp or the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. In every case, uh, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his prints were on final with the uh, federal military prison in Leavenworth. Well, there you go. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916 on Mansfield, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. However, provide payroll records, however, provided an alibi and placed Mansfield in Illinois at the same time as the Basilica axe murders. He was released for a lack of evidence and later won a lawsuit he brought against Wilkerson and was awarded $2,225. It's a lot of money even then. It was, yeah. Uh, but uh, upon his release, there was the subsequent arrest and trial of Reverend Kelly. Um, the, uh, let's see where Kelly starts. In, uh, the other prime suspect in the axe murders was Reverend George Kelly, a traveling preacher. Kelly and his wife settled in uh, Macedonia, Iowa in 1912 after several years of preaching throughout the Midwest. In 1970, Kelly was arrested and charged with murder of one of the victims of the Basilica axe murders. Kelly was invited to attend the Children's Day exercise at the Presbyterian on June 9th in 1912. His presence in Basilica on the night of the murders and his subsequent departure in the early morning hours of June 10th made him a prime suspect because he kind of fled town without saying anything. Kelly's supposed confession made a mockery of law enforcement practices at the time and uh, was withdrawn from his trial. Kelly's first trial resulted in a hung jury and he was finally acquitted by the second. According to information presented by Kelly and Tammy Rundy, uh, Kelly moved to Kansas City, Connecticut, and finally New York City and remained the remaining years of his life, he was, and his final resting place, remain a mystery. Nobody knows where he ended up in the he end. He just vanished? Yep. So, uh, mm. it's believed pretty highly that this was the work of a serial killer. So, people nowadays are always saying things like, like, why do we have all these Dateline specials? Why do we have all these, these Netflix specials? Why are we so obsessed with podcasts and serial killers? Um, people have always been obsessed with serial killers. They're fascinating. This, this, this instance proves exactly that. Because every detective wanted to connect this mass murder in Basilica with all these other murders. Even though they didn't have any real evidence to put it all together. But that everybody, every, everybody has had a theory back then, just like everybody has a theory now. Just instead of the internet, everybody went around writing articles to their local newspaper. 
uh, dropping hints at the at the uh, local federal office or something, being like, "Oh, I think it was this guy. You should check him out." Because there wasn't the internet, but people have always been, you know, massively obsessed with things like this. How can you not be, though? Right. Uh, there exists a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work, and uh, Wilkerson's case against Mansfield actually suggested the same. Uh, a federal officer assigned to the Vasilka case actually announced in May 1913 that he had solved not only the Vasilka axe murders, but 22 others that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time frame. Yo. Uh, McLaffrey's theory was that Henry Moore, no relation to Josiah Moore, was the serial killer responsible for all of the crimes. Henry Moore was actually convicted of murders of his mother, maternal grandmother in Columbia. Yeesh. Missouri, and uh, just months after the murders in Basilica, Moore's family members were killed just as brutally as the victims in Basilica, and his weapon of choice was an axe. Henry Moore was uh, born November 1st, 1874 in Boone County, Missouri. Boone County. He was the eldest son of Enoch and Georgia Ann Wilson Moore. There were three other sons born in a couple. Henry's father was a farmer and served in the Civil War. His mother was a nurse. Two of Henry's brothers, Tilden and Turner, as well as their father passed away before 1910. Henry's remaining brother, Charles, died in uh, 1960 in California. Charles left the area prior to the deaths of his mother and grandmother and did not return for the trial. It was unknown whether or not he was aware of the situation. In 1900, Henry was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, working as a uh, farmhand. It's suspected that uh, Henry may have fathered a child with the young daughter of the farmer, Henry was sentenced to Kansas State Reformatory uh, on forgery charges and was later released in 1911. The murder in Colorado Springs occurred in September of the same year. Testimony during Henry's trial indicated that he had lived with his mother and grandmother during the winter of 1911 and the summer of 1912 uh, when he left to take a job with the railroad. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, he's he's seems to be all over the place. Let's see. You're going to have to give me a second. I lost my place. Yeah. Little suspicious, though. Yeah, right. It is. So, uh, let's get back to where we were. Henry Lee served uh, 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled by the governor of Missouri in 1949. The governor commuted his sentence in 1956. Henry Moore was 82 years old and had been living at a Salvation Army Center in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. It is unknown when he died or where he was living at the time. During the uh, Basilica investigation, the other axe murders also came to light. Just nine months before the crime uh, in Basilica, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Miss A.J. Burnham and her two children were bludgeoned to to death in uh, Colorado Springs. A month later, in October 1911, the family was killed in Monmouth, Illinois. Just after that, five members of the family in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered as they slept. Just a week before the killing of the Moors in Stillingers in Basilica. A man and his wife were killed in uh, Palo Alto, Kansas, and the similarities to the crimes were just striking. It was just crazy. So, uh... In 1912, police officials who are in uh, constant touch with the Vasilka authorities find added parallels to Moore in the uh, Burnham-Wayne murders, 
which are difficult to explain by theory that some person or persons committed both crimes. In Vizca, the murderers stroke skirts and aprons across the windows to prevent anyone from looking into the house. The Wayne and Burnham house's bedspreads were stretched across the windows so no one could see in. In Vasilka, he covered the heads of the victims with bedcloths and wiped blood from his axe and removed the stains from his hands and clothing. This, too, was the same case in Iowa. Hmm. The uh, doors were locked in, a, in an unfastened rear window in each instance, affording a means of entrance for the axe man. Hmm. Yep. So uh, at this point, uh, every single hobo, transient, and uh, degenerate was looked at as somebody who was going to murder you in the middle of the night. Well, all yeah, the, I guess all these, so. I all mean... these constant things happening. Uh, but there, there's there's so many theories. I just got into the big ones there. Um. So that after a while, they 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 had uh, confessions like uh, like the reverend, but he had been bullied and tormented in the confessing. So you can't tell if it so was you real can't or tell not. if it was real or not. Um, there's people who came forward who were obviously mentally unstable in other places and, been, and said that they were the person who did it. But to this day, nobody can say for certain who actually committed these murders. So the house not. in Basilica where these people were murdered still exists to this day. And uh, what's freaking crazy is uh, the current owner of it uh, rents out rooms and holds ghost tours there. I'm sorry, just burn that place down, right? man. Burn it to the ground. So there was, uh, and so there's a lot of uh, these ghost tour people. Obviously, it's ghost tours. So people who want to find ghosts and think ghosts exist are going to find go ghost tours. Are going to find ghosts, right? So this one young guy, he gets super obsessed with this house. He's like crazy obsessed with this ghost house. And uh, I guess he's going through a hard time and everything. And then uh, he's been there back and forth a bunch of times. And then one night they go to uh, something's wrong upstairs in his room. So they go up and his friends find that he has stabbed himself in the chest multiple times in his bedroom. Wait, he stabbed himself? In his chest. Yep. Multiple times in his bedroom. Hmm. Yeah. And so... He gets psychiatric help. Well, he, he he doesn't get psychiatric help. He dies. And uh, but there's just but everybody says there's evil things there and stuff like that. But in reality, I think it's just people who are like, oh, I just I, I've got to find something. They they need something to happens. search for something. Yeah, exactly. Even though they're not going to find, they they go in there and ask 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 nine and questions on a Ouija board about whether oh who's killer and shit like that and it's just it, it's denigrating to the the uh you know large group of people who are bludgeoned to death in that yeah building. large group yeah but that that brings me to my like major point though of after all this everybody's always like oh modern america is obsessed with serial killers that's all we talk about and all we all it's in our tv it's in our media it's in everything but in reality Americans have always been obsessed with serial killers. It's just the way it is. So back then, there was every newspaper, detective agency, police agency, all of them connected this stuff together as uh, 
they're like, oh, it's a bigger and bigger and bigger story, just like you know the internet net sleuths of today. We do, do the same yeah, thing exactly. now. Or, Not everybody much of a thinks they know what that they that they know where it's going, but in reality, uh, a lot of these things, like this one, just dead ended, and nobody will ever know what happened. Which is a disappointment, though, that nobody will ever know what happened. Right. I mean, I mean, if there had been any semblance of uh, uh, chain of custody on evidence or anything like that, maybe we might have something. But it it doesn't seem like it. I mean, there's there's stuff that's pretty old that's been solved to this day because of a good police officers doing good work and keeping a real chain of custody on a uh, on the, uh, evidence and information and stuff like that but now that's so far back that there'd be no way to connect it to anything okay so that's all i got about people bludgeoning other people to death with axes <laughs> uh i think we're gonna be right back in a couple minutes with strange news strange so news stick so get ready to call in
Good time to have the hiccups. It is, because I just turned the microphone. Ah, oh, that's oh, the worst. Why welcome back to Strange Shenanigans. <laughs> Ash is over here hiccuping like a psychopath. I do, I have the hiccups. We're about to roll right into some strange news here. Uh, strange news, as we do it most times, where we uh, find some new information and either mock or wildly speculate about it. Or both. Or both, yes. Yeah. You got any good strange news, Ashley? Too, but you have to be nice because I again, it's <laughs> hilarious. Who gets the hiccups in the middle of a po podcast? Ashley does. That's horrible. Ashley gets the hiccups in the middle of a podcast. Oh my gosh, it's awful. Oh my gosh, I can't stop. <laughs> All right, I'll start it. I you do. sit over there and hiccup, okay? okay. So, uh, scientists in the uh, ever loving and great nation of China. China. We only do the most ethical of things, obviously. Have announced the birth of a primate like no other. With eyes that shine green and fingertips that glowed yellow. Those were just the observable features. Beneath the skin and deep within its genes, the creature was apparently even more quote-unquote remarkable. The lab-born male monkey was the product of unprecedented experiment, which used pluripotent stem cells of two genetically distinct fertilized eggs from the same monkey species who create one living, breathing, long-tailed macaw. This is not the world's first living monkey artificially formed from the fusion of multiple fertilized eggs, but it was the most mixed or chimeric of them all, according to researchers in China and the UK. Uh, an animal chimera is a single organism made up of cells that derive from more than just two parents. In this particular animal's body, the cells and tissues created from two separate stem cell lines, one from a donor embryo and another from a host embryo, were uh, parent in the brain, heart, kidney, liver, gastrointestinal tract, and uh, the cells turned into, yeah, of uh, the 26 different tissue types that the scientists measured in the live monkey, the contribution of extra donated stem cells ranged from a low of 21% all the way up to 92%. This highest percentage was seen in brain tissues. Uh, previous studies have resulted in live-born and terminated monkey chimeric fetuses before, with offspring containing low donor cell contributions to various tissues between 0.1 and 4.5%. In other words, they're messing with the basic biology of how things are born. <laughs> Which is always safe. And creating green-eyed little zombie monkeys that are will one day rule the world. So, that simple. So yuck? Yeah, so gross. Why does Super it yuck. have green eyes? I mean... It's the same species of monkey, and none of them have fucking dark green all throughout its eyeballs but this one does yeah because it's a me. demon monkey it's, it's gonna rule the world someday i mean at least it's not red i mean its fingertips glow Ugh. he's freaking et i'm trying here weird well in other news in the midst of my hiccups yes let's talk really fast so sad 
rings are gonna vanish in 18 months. Awesome. I know, but the headline's super misleading, so this is from Earth.com, and when you open it, it's right on the Google homepage, so, like it's breaking news. Yeah. Um, but it's super misleading, so Saturn's rings aren't actually going anywhere. I feel like I have to add that disclaimer, <laughs> because I opened it, because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best strange news ever, right? Saturn's yeah. rings are gone? Let's blow this up. Um, so we'll fast forward to Earth.com. Saturn's rings are disappearing. <laughs> I know. And it's a cosmic phenomenon. So the grand sight of its rings has an expiration date for 2024, late 2025. Um, and the Saturn's rings are going to vanish from view once, but twice. So, it has seven distinct rings, and this cosmic phenomenon is believed to be formed from remnants of comets, asteroids, and moons that ventured too near to Saturn were ripped apart by the planet's gravitational pull and turned into its rings. So, it's believed that their rings are 400 million years old and has more rings than what we can even see, and so now they're about to disappear. So as it Saturn's going through its orbital rotation, and its orbital rotation actually takes it um, 29 and a half years. So now that it's kind of finalizing its rotation, it's going to look like its rings are disappearing in rotation and right in front of us. So while this doesn't seem like a big deal, normally when things like this happen is when we get things on like, I'm going to say it, Stan unexplained vein mm -hmm. where they're like we just saw something weird well if you're looking at the sky and have like a good enough micros or not microscope but you know telescope and you're watching um its rings are literally disappearing before our eyes so get ready for some some weird cosmic stuff to come yeah. out but yeah i guess now it's like finalizing it takes 29 and a half years to rotate so it's like finalized. That's pretty cool. It's like we're at the end of its 30 years. Yeah. And that's why their rings are disappearing. That's crazy. So that's pretty cool right there. So that's my fun news right there for strange news. Strange news. Strange news. I love some strange news. We have some not so strange news coming up. Um, but it's space related and most of our news is space related or, you know, new species. Yeah. So, um, an Apollo astronaut, Frank Borman, who first orbited the moon, just died yesterday. And he was 95 years old. Yeah. Can you believe that? That's pretty cool. I know you don't want to live to be 95. No, that's way too long. <laughs> But um, he was actually in the two earliest NASA missions, and which included the first moon orbit. He just passed away at 95. And um, he had a stroke a couple days ago, and then he passed away, unfortunately. But until yesterday, I mean, he was the oldest living NAS astronaut from NASA. Yeah. He was... Um, it's known that he said he cared more about beating the Soviet Union in the space race 
than his personal glory. So all he wanted to do was beat those Russians and going into space. Right. Well, I get that. <laughs> That's what's important, isn't it? He had a reputa reputation for attention to detail. And um, that's why NASA selected him to be his astronaut in 1962. So he was first in space in 1965 aboard the Gemini 7. Now, could you, would you go to space um, in 1967 with like their technology? No. Yeah, right. I wouldn't go to space today. It was a 14-day mission. And the mission, they sent him into space. So this is the mission, like, goal was to prove humans could survive in <laughs> space and in weightless we're not conditions. We're not sure, bud. You might die. Right. So his, But if you don't, it'll be super right. cool. So this amazing 95-year-old man, his first job ever with NASA was to go to space to prove that he could live <laughs> that he wouldn't in die. space. That's amazing. Like, I'm never going to be able to do that. Like, he did that. That is so cool. So, and he did it. Like, he accomplished it. So that's a big deal. And then because he survived, he got to be a mission commander with NASA. Nice. Right? So cool. And then he was the commander of the Apollo 8 mission, uh, was a veteran of the Gemini 7 mission, which proved he could survive. I'm yeah. sorry. Still cool. And um, then after the Apollo 1 launch had fire. Yeah, fire. If you ever have time on your hands, go look up how many people died trying to go to the moon and how many like explosions there were it's fascinating not to mention how many people they 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 uh covered up yeah, dying in like, russia in the same oh yeah it was times. awful so nasa got borman to serve on the investigation board to determine the cause of the accident which killed three astronauts because you know he survived he proved that they would live <laughs> <laughs> and then he kept working and because of his work, he helped, you know, land men on the moon in 1969. So, uh, rest in peace, Frank Borman. And <laughs> sorry, the hiccups. Thank you <laughs> for everything you did. That's amazing. He was the man in a two-man mission who proved you could survive in space. Yeah. Really, when you think about it, because he didn't die... <laughs> Yeah. We now have the International Space Station. Which when is you, freaking cool. Right, right, when you think about it. Yeah. So, I guess moment of silence for Frank over right. there. That's right. amazing. On a not-so-light-hearted news, the owners of a Colorado funeral home were arrested Wednesday after nearly 200 decaying corpses were found improperly stored at their facility. John and Carrie Halford, the owners of Return to Nature Funeral Home. They took that pretty literally, didn't Return they? Return to Nature? Were, were arrested on four felony charges, including abuse of a corpse, theft, money laundering, and forgery. Um, the pair were taken in custody without incident, besides letting Grandma and Grandpa rot inside a mm. unventilated shed. Uh, let's see. The... Uh, Probable cause affidavit was has been uh, sealed, and District Attorney Michael Allen has said that he would not contest releasing it to the public at a later date. So, I want to warn you: the information contained in that affidavit is absolutely shocking. He told reporters, um, 
Police first searched the funeral home located roughly 30 miles south of Colorado Springs on October 3rd after receiving a report of an abhorrent smell coming from the building. What they found inside was horrific, according to the Fremont County Sheriff Alan Cooper, who declined to go into further detail during the October 6th press conference on the investigation. Um, Return to Nature offers green and natural burial services. Super green. So green, they let the bodies turn green inside the building. Right? That's pretty bad. Yeah, that's pretty gross. Um, the practice is legal uh, in the state of Cal- Colorado to bury them without metal caskets or chemicals. But the law requires bodies that are not embalmed to be refrigerated within 24 hours of death. And these people were straight up sitting out turning green. Gross. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, some relatives of those whose remains were sent to the funeral home for cremation told uh, the Associated Press that they believed that they were given fake ashes composed of dry concrete. That's upsetting. Uh, investigators originally estimated the 2,500 square foot building contained about 115 bodies, but after transporting all the remains, to El Paso County Coroner's Office, they raised that number to 189, then 190 individuals. The process of identifying specific victims is ongoing. Uh, in total, 110 individuals have been identified using fingerprints, dental records, and medical hardware. 25 bodies have been released back to their families. At least they were released. Mm-hmm. That's gross, man. Every time I hear the, this... This comes around like every couple of years. It really does. That somebody does this shit. It's like, okay, you get behind on your work, okay? Okay, not a big deal if you're a fucking florist, right? Right. But when you're dealing in corpses, do you really Mm want... You're like, oh, I haven't had time to get to that bouquet as a florist. But as, as someone who cremates people, are you really like, you know what? I'm a little behind. Maybe I should just keep stacking 189 Ugh, more bodies gross. in here. And maybe someday I'll catch up. There's no way you're that behind. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's just not possible. It's not. It's disgusting. It it gross. So gross. And you got one for us? Other news. In other news. Right. In other news here on Strange News. I'm going to get a little less gross than you with my beautiful hiccups. And a long lost mammal was actually rediscovered in the remote Indonesian mountain. Oh, I saw this headline. I didn't open it, though. I what? opened it. So who is it? Really, I'm cooler than you. You are cooler I than am. me. So scientists have rediscovered a long lost species of mammal described as having the spines of a hedgehog, Ooh. the snout of an anteater, and the feet of a mole in <laughs> Indonesia's um, Kai Lipcox Mountains more than 60 years after it was last recorded. Um, so it's a long beak in Chinita. It's Attenborough's long beak in, in Chinita. Am I saying that right? I don't know if I'm saying it right. Um, it's named after our David Attenborough, which I know I'm saying right because right. I just watched him on Planet Earth the, the other day. Three toes. Three toes. Sleuth. <laughs> It was photographed for the first time by a trail camera 
on the last day of a four-week expedition led by Oxford University scientists. Um, having descended from the mountain, at the end of the trip, biologist Kempton found the images of the small creature walking through the forest, undergrowth on the last memory card retrieved from more than 80 remote cameras. So that tells me he doesn't want to be found, man. Mm-hmm. There was a great sense of euphoria and also relief, having spent so long in the field with no reward until the final day, he said, describing the moment he first saw the footage with the collaborators. I mean, he saw the footage, but he still didn't find him. The poor guy just still wants to be left alone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, everybody's really excited that they found him. I, I would feel kind of bad that I named a species after David Attenborough and then he like went extinct yeah like we discovered the species we're gonna name him after you <laughs> and by the way <laughs> and then we accidentally dead. stepped on it right it. but he's alive and doing well and all I'm getting out of this footage they have of him is he wants to be left alone yeah which I think is freaking adorable is. but we'll make sure to post the only picture they have of him on our twitter strange shenanigans um but he's pretty cute he's a little fuzzy guy yeah so david attenborough's got a little fuzzy guy who wants to be left alone so i i kind of relate to that i'm a little fuzzy girl who wants to be left alone (laughs) i like him what do you have for us so one day uh dr yap was walking around her her laboratory and she noticed dead spiders curled in the corners of her lab and she asked herself the age-old question why did they die on their backs with their legs curled in? The question led her down a spiral of scientific curiosity. We did a really quick search online and we found that spiders do not have antagonistic muscle pairs. Instead, they rely on flexor muscles to curl their legs inward toward their body and hydraulic pressure to extend their legs outwards. Since Preston's lab focused on soft robotics, they saw the spider biology as inspiration for a pneumatic gripper or claw-like device. But instead of a classic metal claw, they used something much uh, spookier. A spider corpse. Oh, I hate everything to do with spiders. Uh, when spiders die, their muscles tense up. So when the spider is alive, it can actively control the valves in its leg uh, so that it can have this walking motion. But when it dies, it loses the control of those valves and their legs curl inwards. Yap wondered if she could reimpose control over the spider's legs using compressed air. The injected air pressurizes the dead spider's uh, hemolymphs uh, that hasn't yet dried up in the corpse. The lymph adds pressure to the joints, creating a claw-like grabbing motion. The necrobots, as Yap and Preston called them, could pick up fragile materials like wires or even other spiders up to 130% more massive than the reanimated spider grippers. Are you done yet? I am, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Gross, right? That was awful. Everything about Ashley that loves spiders. was plays. awful. That yeah. was horrible. Yeah. I'm gonna have nightmares now. <laughs> of uh, zombie spiders? Yeah. Mechanical zombie spiders? I am. So, speaking of, like, my worst fears, which is spiders, as you know, um... Do you know how I feel about robots? Yes, I know how you feel about robots. Do, the singularity! Do our listeners know how I feel about robots? They I guess should, if you're they? a new listener just calling in, you do not. But if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you will realize I hate robots. 
and everything about robots. Robots are the absolute worst. I mean, we just talked about robot I spiders. I might take so. my zombie. Well, no, it's robot spiders. So robot again, zombie spiders. It's still the worst. So, fun fact according to this article I just pulled out from popularmechanics.com, which is in every grandpa's bathroom. It is, <laughs> including my dad. Including mine. <laughs> A scientist says the singularity will happen by 2030 and i didn't really know what that meant but i'm gonna tell you what it meant because it was just published yesterday and it's awful the singularity so the singularity is the moment where ai is no longer under human control and less than a decade away according to one ai expert so that's what the singularity means though it's right there right under the headline in case you're a dummy like me apparently so and my, did uh, no what before it meant. we even get into this why isn't the uh the follow-on so everybody needs to call for us to shut it the fuck down i don't know let's speculate wildly i mean if they're oh god it's uncomfortable <laughs> to think so there is at least one expert who believes the singularity the moment when artificial intelligence surpasses the control of humans could be just a few years away i hope my hiccups make this like less painful <laughs> <laughs> Um, it makes it all sound silly and unintimidating. <laughs> that's a lot shorter than current predictions. So there were already predictions. I feel like I need to emphasize this. There were already predictions, Stan, on like when AI was going to surpass us. I'm sorry. If there were already predictions, why were we still doing this? <laughs> okay. So again, let's refocus. That's a lot shorter than current predictions regarding the timeline of AI dominance! <laughs> Especially considering the AI dominance is not exactly guaranteed in the first place. Okay, sure. Anyone see iRobot? <laughs> so, or Terminator. We could keep going. <laughs> or Eagle Eye. <laughs> Any of them! <laughs> so, Ben Gortzel? Gortzel? Yep. CEO Mr. Gortzel. CE Singularity Net. Um, he holds a PhD from Temple University. Apparently, we need to say that. I don't care. I'm already freaking out. Has worked as a leader of Humanity Plus and the Artificial General Intelligence Society. So, why are you doing this and not stopping it? <laughs> Sorry. Um, told Decrypt that he believes artificial intelligence. Um, is three to eight years away. AGI is the term for AI that can truly perform tasks just as well as humans. I want to see that push a baby out of its hoo-ha. And it's a well, pre- I mean, it's only a microchip. It's not that big. <laughs> All it's got to do is have a little factory inside itself uh -huh. that produces microchips and shoots them out its tiny little USB slot. <laughs> it's a prerequisite for the singularity soon following and three to eight years three three to eight years three to eight years i won't even be 40 by the time this happens <laughs> like whether it's three whether it's eight i will still will not hit 40 by the time this happens i'm freaking out right now whether you believe it or not 
There's no sign of the AI push slowing down anytime soon. Large language models from the likes of Meta, he can suck it, and <laughs> OpenAI, along with AGI, focus on Elon Musk, XAI, who's a super villain, <laughs> are all pushing hard towards growing AI. Okay, Meta, suck it, and Elon Musk is a proven super villain. Doesn't he have a layer? Mm -hmm. Like, he has a layer. These systems have greatly increased the enthusiasm of the world for AGI, Gortzel told Decrypt, so you'll have more resources, both money and just human energy. More smart young people want to plunge into the work and working of AGI. I'm sorry, if you're a smart working young person, please work against this nonsense because again, robots, my worst fear because I grew up with the Terminator. I grew up when they tried to turn Terminator into a show that flopped. We have Battlestar Galactica. We have iRobot. We had iRobot the book and the movie. If watching it or reading it didn't freak you out enough, something's wrong with you. When the concept of AI first emerged as early as the 1950s, Corso says that its development was driven by the United States military, I'm sorry, have we ever seen ET? And seen primarily as a potential national defense tool. Again, didn't okay. we see- Stop, uh, hang on, hang on, hang, no. hang right on, okay? Okay, I was in the army not that long ago. Mm. Do you know? Do you know how updated our computer technology was? You guys had like things from like Korea. Right, we had like friggin' <laughs> First off, our tanks were original A1 Abrams. World War II. At the same time, not World War II, but they were they were uh, five generations behind the current A1 Abrams, which is a SEP A2. Um, and our computers were literally older than any computer I've ever bought at a Walmart and less effective. Well, don't worry, I didn't finish my sentence because mm -hmm. its development was originally driven by the United States military. Sure it was. Let's but all blame because you guys are still using technology from the 90s, the Civil War, <laughs> um, recently, however, progress in the field has been propelled by a variety of drivers with a variety of motives, clearly, to take over the world. Yes, yep. Now, the why is making money for companies, he says. But also, interestingly, for artists or musicians, it gives you cool tools to play with. I'm sorry, weren't, didn't, aren't we still in a if, fight because AI can now write scripts and I'm act sorry, and I'm sorry. sing? If, 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 if you're an artist or a musician and you're using AI then to you're generate, not an then artist you're not an artist or musician. You're a computer programmer, is it, and you should go fuck yourself. Right, but isn't everything you're saying proof? Because are we still in, like, negotiations with the whole, you yeah, know, exactly. the, the actors and writers yep. guild and all of that? Mm -hmm. Because I'm I'm with them. I'm sorry, letting AI do all this stuff takes away everything. I mean, it's not my fault Hollywood's out of ideas and we're making something how to give four. But right. the fact is, that's, that's the point. You can't... That takes away everything. I mean, it wasn't AI who thought of Breakfast at Tiffany's. It wasn't, but I mean, it, it might as well have been AI that thought of everything in the past 30 years because they're just using an algorithm at this point to put out the same bullshit nonsense right, But that's movies bad enough that they're using an algorithm to make like music. Mm -hmm. Once AI get involved, we're screwed. We're never again gonna have See, the, this music whole, all this, all this crap of, uh, oh, I, I did AI, 
using AI to help me produce music. Um, that all started when you friggin' jerk offs started quote unquote sampling. It's called plagiarism, by the way. Um, other people's music sampling other people's music is just plagiarism, and you just found a cool hipster way of saying plagiarism. Pretty it's much. that simple. So, I mean, we already lost great bands. I, I still stay by the mid 2000s last time we ever had distant music, right? I agree with you. That's because we're in our 30s, that's but, true, and so that's we our generation it. of music, but it's true, right? Like, it is. I throw up every time I turn on current music. I have to put on the classic rock. And my, our generation music isn't even on classic rock yet. Well, some of it is. Well, very little though, I have yeah. to say. So, yeah, it's gotten bad. I mean, you got your 90s bleedovers into the 2000s that are in classic rock. Yeah, 90s bleedovers. They haven't quite hit 2000s. A few heads. Like, how was Jet on there? I feel like we're digressing. Right. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, back to it. Getting to the singularity will require a significant leap from the current point of AI development. Today's AI focuses on specific tasks. The push towards AGI is intended to give the technology a more human-like understanding of the world and open up its abilities. As AI continues to broaden its understanding, it moves closer towards AGI, which some say is just one step away from singularity. Which, if you haven't been paying attention, echoes like the destruction of mankind. So, it's really that simple. We've yeah. given we've given something without uh, uh, morals, soul, emotion, the ability to uh, develop its own set of morals, soul, and emotion. So it's going to do whatever the fuck it feels like at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sums it and up it's going to interpret our lives in the way humans exist in any way it yep. sees fit at some point. I just don't understand why we're like, we're like fine with it. Yeah, right. I it's don't, insane. I don't know. I don't understand why we're okay with this. Something AI can't take away from us is Wally, the emotional support alligator. Um, oh, I want one. Wally, the emotional support alligator, went to see a Phillies game and was immediately told to get the fuck out. Well, I mean, I I kind of have to stand with the uh, the uh, the administration of the uh, Phillies there. Uh, an emotional support alligator uh, walks into a ball park and is asked to leave. That's the story that made headlines in recent days, and thanks to uh, viral photos and videos showing Wally, a six-foot-long, fifty-five-pound alligator wearing a harness and a leash, and his human companion outside of Citizens Bank Park during a Phillies game on Wednesday night. Aww. Uh, what 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 one tweet here uh are you kidding a phillies fan tried to come into the game tonight with what they said was a service animal animal which was an alligator <laughs> He's so cute. it's not cute it's a killing machine there's no cute to it he's emotional support oh. killing machine so sweet <laughs> Oh boy! So uh, Wally has more than a uh, hundred thousand followers on TikTok and another twenty-seven thousand on uh, Instagram. Um, uh, he's gone now. viral before, including for uh, joyfully splashing around in the fountain at Philadelphia's famous Love Park. How did you know he was joyfully doing? It? <laughs> I don't know. How do you tell? Maybe he just like needed water. <laughs> that that area is like, oh man, look at all these tasty little children that can eat all over the place. Uh, he he posed for photos photos at City Hall with the uh, mayor of York and 
visited seniors from a local retirement home. Ooh, slow-moving targets right there. Um, and he was the visual reference for Alligator Loki in the hit Disney show Loki. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. That's uh, amazing. Uh, according to his handler, Wally only goes where he's invited. Uh... <laughs> Well, yeah, he's yeah. an alligator. One of uh, Wally's uh, big fans who visits him regularly from New Jersey is also a big Phillies fan. Happens to be friendly with some of the players and their wives. After hearing her rave reviews, the team invited Heaney and Wally to Philadelphia. It's about two hours away from where they live in Harrisburg. Uh, Henny said that they were there not to watch the game, but to meet the, uh, the players. Um... But <laughs> and he's, but by the time they got to the stadium, the players were already preparing for the game. And since they were already there, his friend figured she'd buy them tickets to watch. But she didn't ask about the rules for emotional support animals well, slash yeah. alligators. Well, I mean, there weren't rules until he appeared. No. Who needed rules like that? I personally would love to meet Wally. Oh, okay, so here, here to here to give you some perspective on alligators. Uh, this this week, uh, Florida authorities killed an alligator that was seen with oh. human remains in its mouth. Well, it wasn't Wally though. Well, you don't know. It might be Wally's cousin. He wasn't an emotional support alligator. Those are clearly. It might trained. be Polly. Polly, Wally's cousin. A large alligator was killed by officials after it was seen with human remains in its mouth in the Tampa Bay area era area of Florida. Uh, Jamarcus Bullard said he witnessed the horrific scene in a canal in an unincorporated Largo before reporting the sighting to authorities on Friday. When the scene turned gruesome, Bullard hit record on his phone. I threw a rock at the gator just to see if it was real. And the gator, <laughs> really a gator, and like it pulled the body like it was holding onto the lower part of the torso and pulled it underwater. Ugh. The 13-foot male alligator was humanely killed and removed from the water with the assistance What's of humanely killed? shot in the friggin' like, head. Right? That's okay. yeah. The sheriff's office has identified the deceased person as 41-year-old Sabrina Peckham. The manner and cause of death is pending and ongoing. The manner and cause of death is death by fucking alligator, guy. Oh, <laughs> How's it pending? It's not yet known whether the alligator killed Peckham but recent high-profile <laughs> alligator attacks on humans have left some Floridians on edge. Here's a guess, guys. Just don't live in Florida, which is literally a swamp where people don't belong. It's very true. <laughs> in February, an alligator killed an 85-year-old woman at Fort Pierce while she was trying to save her dog. Oh, Two weeks funny. later, a man survived a bite after opening his front door to a gator. Still... So it says still it's extremely rare for alligators to attack humans unprovoked uh says frank mazati a professor of wildlife ecology at the university of florida he's in on it he's in on it <laughs> when you go to the water's edge you are much more in danger of drowning than you are being bit by an alligator says mazati i don't bite guys <laughs> is why we live in the north where uh it, yep. it's currently 30 degrees and it's been half snowing all day there's no, no freaking alligators no poisonous snakes nope. no poisonous smiters nope there's no hurricanes nope no tornadoes nope 
yeah, we get a blizzard or two, but uh, you just put a jacket and pull up a, a sleeping bag and get all cuddly and you're good. Yeah, pretty much what we do for blizzards is not leave the house. Yeah, exactly, right? That's it. That's all we do. That, that's the solution to it. And, and there's no chance of the roof of your house blowing off. Nope. Or you being sucked into oblivion by a tornado. Nope. Because it's just frozen water. We're pretty much fine. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we get a bad rainstorm. Guess what we do then? Stay we in the house. Don't sleep the house. <laughs> I don't know why anybody lives anywhere else. Somebody's right? going to have to call in and explain it to me <laughs> because I don't get it. Right. Ever. But since you're talking about cute and cuddly animals, mm -hmm. um, I would like to talk about cute and cuddly rats. Ooh. Yeah. Yay, rats. So, yay, rats. <laughs> I never thought we'd hear that sentence. It's better than alligators <laughs> eating human remains. That's very true. So, fun fact. Um, rats may have the power of imagination. <laughs> so, yeah. Rats might have the power of imagination. So... Scientists say that, like humans, the rodents can navigate through a space using only their thoughts. Ooh. Ooh. I know. This is from, who's this from? Oh, The Guardian. That's pretty reputable, right? I don't know. I don't care. Um, researchers have found that rats can navigate their way through a space they have previously, previously explored using their thoughts alone, suggesting that rodents have some sort of imagination. Um, Chong Zai Lai, the first author of the study from the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, Janelle Research Campus, said the study was the first to show animals can, at will, flexibly activate the brain's representation of places that are distant from where they currently are, which is just like a fancy way of saying, like, imagination of escape. I don't know why we had to get so high tech, but we did. This is a fundamental building block of a specific type of imagination, one that enables us to project ourselves into the past or future with a certain scenario. Researchers note that a region of the brain called the hippocampus, isn't that from the water boy? Do you remember that? No, that's the uh, Abdullah Amulagata. Oh, Abdullah Amulagata. <laughs> Well, Mama says. Oh, <laughs> Mama said. <laughs> it contains some sort of mental model to um, previously explored environments. When an individual moves through a specific location with such an environment, particular neurons fire in the brain. However, humans can do this. We all know humans can. But they've just discovered that rats can do the same thing. And they pick specific places where they actually want to go in their brain, in their imagination. So I don't know what they're like. They're mm -hmm. like, mmm, cheese. They could just imagine themselves in the town of cheese, I guess. Yeah, or fresh corpses under New York City. Corpses, snakes. What was the episode of Bob's Burger we just watched? The rats joined together with the cockroaches. With the cockroaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess if they miss their cockroaches, they can, you know, imagine that they're there. But yeah, fun fact um, rats can now hang out in their imagination world. So that's nice. pretty cool. Go rats. Props to you. Alright. Rats and alligators live forever. So, uh, here, here's another great news story. Everybody get out your glasses and your, uh, your 55-gallon drums. Uh, <laughs> cascades of red wine flood a city streets in Portugal what? after huge tanks rupture. 
Uh, there is so much surplus red wine in Portugal, it's flooding the streets. <laughs> That's one way of deciphering the incredible scene that unfolded in São Lourenço do Labario, a small town where millions of liters of wine recently overwhelmed the road. <laughs> Roughly 2.2 million liters of wine poured out of two burst tanks at Distilleria Laveria on Sunday. According to local newspaper... Diario de Cambrera. I'm really stretching it with these pronunciations, <laughs> so you might have to go read it yourself if you actually can speak any bit of Spanish. The uh, viral video from <clears throat> the scene shows a river of wine coursing down a hilly street and going over the curbs. <clears throat> the company issued a statement saying it uh, profoundly laments the incident, <laughs> pledging to bear the cost of the cleanup. Um, uh, roughly an hour's drive from Porto, Portugal. No one was hurt by the torrent of wine, but it did reportedly flood at least one cellar. Oh my god, could you imagine just having your cellar full of wine? How do you pump that shit out? I can imagine it, and I will take care of the actually problem be, for I you. actually be doing backstrokes in there. I don't even know how to swim. Figure it out for the wine. Um, a large amount was being stored at the distillery through the, uh, government's crisis distillation program that's amazing. because that's what the government's worried about not whether you have enough water in portugal or uh or a, a, enough uh resources it's whether you have enough wine to see out in a, a catastrophic event <laughs> how do i lead this committee <laughs> this uh this crisis distillation program aims to use incentive funds to remove a giant glut of wine from the market pipeline before the year's harvest it was slated uh, to be converted into alcohol so uh there's so much wine in portugal they, <laughs> they, that they're like no we're gonna have to take turn this into legit booze and we're the government's gonna buy it because we have touch wine but uh accidentally the government spilled it into streets creating a river of wine that flooded people's basements that's amazing <laughs> portugal has the uh world's highest wine consumption rate per capita <laughs> but these are difficult times for wine producers across <laughs> europe portugal's wine consumption is in a free fall down 34 percent oh they're just not um, getting it out of the box it's like all they... that inflation all that inflation yep uh uh large countries such as france and germany are also seeing double digit declines in their wine they should you, come to You got anything Maine. else for us? I do. Um, astronomers have found seven planets being fried by their star. Ooh, that's fun. You know, fun fact, we revolve around a star. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that? We do. So Thanks for that valuable information that nobody here knew. No, nobody did know that. So, to ease your mind, some planets are getting fried by the stars they revolve around. What? So in our solar system, little Rocky Mercury is a planet orbiting closest to the sun, and it's constantly fried by solar radiation seven times more intense than what we experience on Earth. So if you're one of those people who are like, we'll find life on Mercury, yeah, we're not going to. It's not right. possible. But anyway, astronomers using data obtained by NASA... Um, the now-retired Kepler Space Telescope, they've identified seven planets orbiting a star in our Milky Way galaxy. So in, like, space terms, it's, like, not far. But yeah. in realistic terms, it's, like, super far. It's in terms. But in but... space terms, it's not. So they've identified seven planets orbiting a star in the Milky Way galaxy, 
all of them suffering the wrath of their star's radiant energy even more brutally than Mercury. And this is the second most planets so far discovered around any star beyond our solar system. So we're always on the quest for life. Always. And we're always talking about the quest for life and even like little organisms we found that are life. But in our own galaxy, in our own, you know, bigger Milky Way galaxy, um, they're finding planets that are like charred worse than our Mercury by their own star. All seven of these planets that are being burned to a crisp are bigger than Earth. And they're the biggest of our solar system's four rocky planets. Some are smaller than Neptune. All of them have orbits closer to their star called Kepler 385 than Mercury's average distance to the sun. All of the planets are fried more intensely than any planet in our solar system. And it's, you know, not, I mean, it's great for research, but it's just like not looking good for finding life closer to us, if that makes any sense to you. Scientists have today identified more than 5,500 exoplanets, planets that are outside of our solar system, and spotted hundreds of stars with multiple exoplanets. Kepler's 385's collection of seven exoplanets is topped only by eight known to orbit the star, full Kepler 90. One other star, Tripist 1, is known to have Tripist. seven, and our solar system has only eight. Doesn't, doesn't Tripus sound like a slur in, like, 1400s Europe for a loose woman? <laughs> that Tripist. So, while they're still researching, you know, that because they've already discovered 5,500 exoplanets outside of our solar system, mm -hmm. they've determined that the two other, they're not calling them solar system, but the two other set of planets, like these seven that are orbiting a star, yeah. they're so close to the star they're orbiting that they're fried. They can't house life. Ah. So really, to keep trying to find life outside our solar system, it looks like it's just going to take longer. Yeah. Because all these little clusters they're finding, they're too close to stars yeah. to have life. So I don't know if that's good news what or What if they're like Korg-type aliens? <laughs> well, they're that's made true. Out of rocks? If they're Korg, you know, we don't know. Yeah. But to find life, to find our aliens, it kind of gives you a perspective for alien believers like me that um, how far, hypothetically, they would have to travel Yeah. when you think about it. Because I'm like team alien all the way. But we know. I know. But as NASA keeps trying mm -hmm. to find all this information to find life on other planets, yeah. especially outside of our solar system, it really kind of gives you perspective if you are an alien believer, like how far their technology must be to travel yeah. to here. Yeah, it'd have to be pretty friggin' intense. It's gotta be really intense. Yep. Especially if you're doing any research. It really affirms my belief that sometimes, especially when, like, Earth or me is having a bad day, like, they wouldn't come here. No, no. Like, yeah. if, you're, if your technology's so great that you can make it here through all these galaxies, you Why do would your you recon. Come here in the first like, you place? do your recon first. You're like, Earth? Yeah, that's a crap show. Like, four wars going on at once. We're not going there. Right. And they turn the other way. <laughs> a little disappointing. I like to think, like, my secret best friend, girlfriend is an alien. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's nobody around here on Earth. So <laughs> she's got to be. Everybody here sucks. She's got to be in another galaxy. I'm waiting. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Okay, folks, I think that's all we've got for you tonight. Uh, this has been the Strange Shenanigans Podcast. You can find us on... Like everywhere, if you Yeah, try. pretty much everywhere. Pretty much everywhere. So we're on Instagram, Strange Shenanigans. Uh, TikTok, Strange Shenanigans Podcast. Tumblr, Twitter, all under Strange Shenanigans or The Strange Show. And you really need to hop over to Patreon at The Strange Show, Strange Shenanigans, because then you can join these awesome tiers like the Bigfoot tier and the Gnome tier. And you join these tiers and we send you all kinds of free stuff and we call you on air and you get shirts and right. stickers. And, and we can insulate our studio. Yeah, and we can insulate our studio. it's 30 degrees out, so it's cold in there. It's really cold. And while you bring it up, don't forget hashtag name our studio. So we've already gotten some suggestions if you use hashtag name our studios on our Twitter, which is The Strange Show. Yeah. And um, we got Hanger as a suggestion. Area 51 as a suggestion. Yeah. We need more suggestions. So we want to hear more suggestions from you. Right, yeah. So we need more options. We people. need more options. We want to hear from you. What yeah. do you want? We try to record live a lot too, so you can call in anytime. If you go oh, yeah. on Podbean on your app, there's like a really convenient call in button. Like you just press it. Yeah. That's it. And you can call right Especially in. Especially when we're doing strange news, because our strange news only gives us, you know, you know, in our research, most of it's computer generated, so it's only gonna give us stuff close to us on the East Coast here. Yeah, or it's like generic strange news, like all the yeah. space stuff I read. You know how Google yep. data minds yep. you. So we're not getting all the cool, funny local no. stuff that, that you guys will find we would you know, love in, your, your local in your hometown stuff. or just from, you know, a local search of your news, you know? We love local news. Like, we read you an article quite a long time ago about our own local newspaper reporting a stolen pizza. Right, exactly high profile that was high profile here. news in our tiny town the teenager not only stole the pizza but when he got caught said it wasn't worth it because it was disgusting yeah because it was pineapple, it was pineapple pizza. pizza and he said it was gross <laughs> and that was our whole article and that's the greatest strange news ever right and that's courtesy of our local the lincoln news right <laughs> so we want to hear your strange news so make sure you find us if you can't hop on and press one button to tell us about it Hop on to Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all of them under Strange News, Strange Shenanigans, and Strange Show and tell us what the heck is going on. I'm Ashley. I'm Stan. And we want to see you on the strange side. Woohoo! That's what